The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I don't like your attitude. Ah, definitely. The defense is wrong. Don't think that guy just said, boom, back Tuesday, PFT PM, Week 10 Awards coming up. Also, an interview with Jets running back Le'Veon Bell that was taped earlier today. Finally, your questions and only the best questions that you ask and or the ones that we happen to notice as we pick through the flood that inevitably flows in on a Tuesday. Michael David Smith joining me, and we are 10 weeks in. We had a great Monday night game. We're going to be talking about that coming up in relation to a couple of the awards, MDS One of the questions I posed on Twitter today, which game was better? Last year's Rams-Chiefs Monday night game that was supposed to be in Mexico City but ended up at the Coliseum, or last night's 49ers-Seahawks Monday night classic? Which one do you prefer? Well, I did vote in that poll, and I believe I was in the majority who said I did prefer Chiefs-Rams last year. To me, that was like the quintessential just fun game It was, you know, the most anticipated game of the season, all season long. It had looked like the Chiefs and Rams were the two best teams in the NFL. Uh, It looked like a Super Bowl preview. Turned out not to be. The Chiefs fell just short. The Rams were there. To me, last year, that was just the perfect game. But last night's game certainly was one of the best we've had so far this season. Yeah, you're definitely in the majority at 65%. And I've noticed that no matter how many votes ultimately come in, the needle doesn't change much from what it becomes in the first 500 to 1,000 votes. 65-35, Chiefs-Rams over Seahawks 49ers. I think the difference with last night's game is it was not as expected, right? We didn't go into it with this sense that something special could happen last year with Rams Chiefs we sensed it and we got it this year hey you know it could be a good game but we didn't expect it to be anything close to this back and forth nail biter where the momentum swings were so dramatic from one team to the next during the course of the game there were so many momentum swings by the time it was over it was hard to remember when it all started and how it all started and we spent two hours talking about the game today on NBCSN and there are things you forget like that incredible strip of the ball when DK Metcalf was trying to score late in the first half in any other game that's the play of the game in last night's game it's a play that becomes an afterthought to an afterthought because so many other great things happened in the second half and in overtime yeah I loved that play running him down from behind stripping the ball I'm still not sure that they ruled it correctly, though. I, I don't know that that the 49ers actually had possession of the ball until they were in the end zone, in which case it should have been a touchback. Terry McCauley said the same thing on Twitter. So I don't actually know if they got that right, but they definitely got it right giving the 49ers the ball. And I think at one point in the process, they were, at least what you could see in the background as they were talking about it, it looked like they were getting ready to give the 49ers a ball on the 20. But ultimately, that was supplanted by everything that happened 
third quarter, fourth quarter, and inevitably fifth quarter. All right, let's begin with our awards. And as mentioned, the 49ers Seahawks game will come up more than a few times over the course of the next half hour or so as we run through these awards. Player of the week for MDS for week 10. What do you got? I'm starting with that very game, and I'm picking Seahawks defensive end, Jadavion Clowney, who I thought had certainly his best game since he was traded to Seattle and maybe the best game of his career. I thought he was really, really impressive. Obviously, he had the big splash play with the fumble recovery for a touchdown, but I thought his pressure was just relentless. You, you see the speed, the quickness off the ball, the power that he has when he's running through blockers. I, I thought you saw the whole package. Uh, Pete Carroll called it a breakout game for him. I, I really think it was as well. And I think it was also a game that raises the question of why the Texans handled the Clowney situation the way they did, why they kept him unsigned on the franchise tag all offseason, and then at the very end seemed to make a very hasty trade to send him to Seattle for two guys who have barely played this year and a third-round pick. Texans actually agreed to pay about half of his salary this year to make the, the trade happen. Just seemed like a weird decision to me because we're seeing what a difference maker Jadavion Clowney can be. Yeah, and last night was his best game by far as a member of the Seahawks. And the question becomes whether he can keep that up. And if he does keep it up, they're going to win a lot more games. Offensively, it's Russell Wilson and a revolving door of characters around him who step up from time to time to get it done. Defensively, there hasn't been that one guy who has stood out. Yes, Bobby Wagner's there, but not that dominant force that mirrors Russell Wilson offensively. Clowney can be the mirror image of Russell Wilson defensively if he can bring it like that each and every week. And if he plays like that the rest of the way, he's going to make a ton of money on the open market. I don't know that he needs to have multiple more games like last night. Last night's game in that spot with everyone watching may be enough to get some general managers to allocate millions in March when he becomes a free agent if the Seahawks don't sign him. Remember, they can't use the franchise tag. That was part of the deal that was done. He's going to hit the open market, and we'll see what becomes of Jadavian Clowney, and a lot of it depends largely on what he does as the rest of the season unfolds. I'm going to eat some crow and or something else that has four letters in it. I'm going to give Kirk Cousins his due. And even though the numbers for the Vikings quarterback in Sunday night's win over the Cowboys, probably not the kind of thing that's going to get him serious consideration for offensive player of the week. Indeed, he was outplayed statistically by Dak Prescott. Prescott had 397 passing yards on Sunday night. Cousins only 220, but Cousins delivered. He engineered the victory. He he helped build the 14-0 lead with a couple of touchdown passes to Kyle Rudolph. And yes, there were moments where it felt like Cousins was once again hyper aware of the circumstances and missed on uh, one big throw when Kyle Rudolph was wide open. And that, in hindsight, I said, boy, that's the moment if they lose where it turned. He held it together enough. They had the drive, went down 21-20 to go ahead for good. Now, there were 10 straight runs, but he's still the guy who's the captain of the ship as they go through that process of building the lead, holding the lead, winning the game. And because of that extended narrative that was baked in so thoroughly, the fact that Cousins, as the guy 
at the center of the storm for the Vikings, was able to hold together and get the win. I have to give him credit for that. We'll see coming up in 20 days whether or not there's another primetime win in his pocket as they go to Seattle, and they had a primetime game in Seattle last year, and it was an ugly sight offensively for the Vikings. But at least for now, the narrative has been flipped. Whether it stays flipped, we'll see. But Cousins deserves credit for leading that Vikings offense and leading that team and being the guy who really is the lightning rod for the criticism. It was funny after the game when Michelle Tafoya asked him about how it feels to beat a team like the Cowboys in primetime. He said, well, I didn't beat them. The Vikings beat them. This is a team game. And that's a convenient thing to say because sooner or later, they're going to lose a game like that. And you want people to say, Kirk didn't lose it. It was a team game. It's a team loss. The Vikings lost that game. Bottom line is the quarterback gets too much credit when things go well, too much blame when things go poorly. He's gotten blame when it's gone poorly in the past, so he gets the credit for things going well on Sunday night in Dallas. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to see what the offensive identity is of the Vikings down the stretch and into the playoffs, they hope, because Mike Zimmer has made no secret that he wants to be a running football team They have been running the ball effectively with Dalvin Cook, but clearly with the investment they made in Kirk Cousins and the investments they made in Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen, they've put too much into quarterback and wide receiver not to be an efficient passing team as well. So I'm going to be interested to see what their offensive identity really is down the stretch and what kind of team they are uh, when we get into December and the Vikings hope in January because they're, they're an interesting team. They're actually kind of a team that you could look at and say they're, they're built to be the dome team that they are, the indoor team, the passing team. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting thing when you contrast that with some of the things Mike Zimmer has said. I think Zimmer's attitude is still, I'd love to run it down the throat of another team in December and January. I think that's how you win at that time of year. It'll be interesting to see what that balance is, how much of of it the Vikings are putting on Kirk Cousins versus how much of it they're kind of keeping Kirk Cousins from being the one who either wins for them or loses for them. And Zimmer said after the game, a drive like the one where the Vikings went ahead for good 28-21 with 10 straight wins, that breaks the will of an opposing defense. And look, Cousins only has good nights when Dalvin Cook is able to run the ball, 97 yards rushing, plus another 86 yards, primarily, if not exclusively, from basically four to five foot screen passes where Cook just takes off with the ball afterwards. So Cook has a lot to do and may be the MVP of the Vikings team, but it's the guy who we're going to criticize if they fail in prime time that I feel compelled to give the credit to since they did pull off the victory and they may have flipped this narrative. And I was talking earlier today with Paul Allen, who does the Vikings play-by-play. He's got a show on KFA and I'm on there every Tuesday. I told him, look, look at the last two weeks of the season. You've got the potential for an NFC West championship game Sunday, week 17, when the 49ers play the Seahawks again. But for the NFC North... The last two games for the Vikings are the Packers and the Bears both at home. The Packers have the Vikings on the road and the Lions on the road. It very well could be that the Packers enter Week 16 as the NFC North first-place team may be holding a bye, and by the end of Week 17, 
The Vikings are the ones who win the division, and the Vikings end up with the bye. Three losses. I'm not going to say they'll run the table, but even if they only lose one down the stretch and they finish 12-4, and four, that could be enough to get that two seed because you're going to have some, some cross-pollination between the 49ers and the Packers who play each other. The 49ers and the Saints play each other. These teams don't have cakewalk schedules down the stretch. Maybe the easiest schedule belongs to the Saints, but if they play like they did on Sunday, who knows what will happen. But the Vikings have an opportunity, and they just have to keep plugging away, starting with not tripping over their own two feet against the Broncos on Sunday, but then after the bye, it's the Seahawks, which won't be easy. It's the Lions, which are never easy. It's a trip to the Chargers, which currently is a primetime game, but probably won't be. And then those last two weeks, it could set up to be an opportunity for the Vikings to really make some noise unexpectedly in the NFC. All right, let's go to Rookie of the Week for Week 10. And MDS, you are going to once again retreat to the game that was played last night at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara. I am indeed, and I'm going to take 49ers wide receiver Debo Samuel, even though it was in a losing effort. He was really the only threat Jimmy Garoppolo had on Monday night. He had 112 receiving yards. No one else on the 49ers had more than 42. So he had 70 more receiving yards than anyone else on the team. And he was really the only threat they had. I thought it was his best game of the season. I think it's important that he keeps playing well. George Kittle is hurt. Emmanuel Sanders got hurt. The 49ers were without some of their best weapons offensively. And I think it's very important for Debo Samuel to play well. I think that was a good pick that John Lynch made. I think he's a good fit for what Kyle Shanahan wants to do offensively. And uh, I think he's having a very good rookie year and had his best game yet. So Debo Samuel really making a difference to the 49ers. And and they're going to need it because just as you were saying with the Vikings or the Packers, we also have this situation with the 49ers and the Seahawks where they both look like playoff teams, but there's an enormous difference between being either the one seed and the two seed or the five seed and the six seed. The difference is win two games at home or three on the road to get to the Super Bowl. 49ers need to play at a high level the rest of the way to stay ahead of the Seahawks. I think Debo Samuel may be a very important part of that down the stretch. Yeah, and I agree with you. And he played with an intensity, with a passion that they desperately needed because once Emmanuel Sanders was out, they didn't have a top receiving threat. And the offense changed. And Jimmy Garoppolo was not good last night. A little happy feet. That was something Peter King talked about today on PFT Live. Inaccuracies. That last drive, there was a wide-open Dante Pettis. Jimmy Garoppolo misfired. Could have kept the clock running. And then down the field, Debo Samuel was open. He was behind Shaquille Griffin. And Jimmy Garoppolo didn't deliver it in stride. Or maybe it's a touchdown walk-in by Debo Samuel and the 49ers win that game. But Samuel did everything expected of him. And that's one of those games where it can elevate you. It can make you a better player the rest of the way. And we don't know how much time, if any, Emmanuel Sanders is going to miss beyond last night. But they got to turn it around. They got the short week. They played 70 minutes. The Cardinals are coming to town, and they're going to give them everything they can handle. And then it's that road trip. Pa- or not road trip. Starts with a home game against the Packers. Then it's at Baltimore and at New Orleans. Some real tests for the San Francisco 49ers. All right, my rookie of the week. I'm going to go to the game on Sunday for the Kansas City Chiefs. Another losing effort, but a guy that really has come in And yes, he's had some rough spots. He had an ugly fumble against the Vikings that set up a touchdown to start the third quarter a week earlier. 
But Nicole Hardman, on one of the plays of the year, one of the great plays of the year, the jump pass from Patrick Mahomes, Hardman caught that ball and he exploded with it. And if you would have blurred the seven, you would have thought that his number is 10. This guy is their new Tyreek Hill. He's the guy that allows them, if they choose to at some point, move on from Tyreek Hill. He's the ultimate insurance against Tyreek Hill doing something that gets himself in trouble. He makes Tyreek Hill potential trade bait at some point if Hardman continues to develop. But in that moment, in that instant, in that flash, we saw the potential this guy has and how this Chiefs offense, what it can be. Look, it's not where it is. They're 6-4, and four, which is a major disappointment. They've lost games they should have won. They should have won on Sunday. Chris Sims has a great breakdown of the game where he points out that there were some misfires when it was 10-0. It could have been 17-0. It forces, if that happens, the Titans away from a running game that racked up 188 rushing yards. But Miko Hardman, in that one play, like I said, one of the best plays of the week and something that gets him some credit for coming in and being in his first year, much more than Tyreek Hill was as a rookie. If you remember, they did not use Tyreek Hill as a rookie the same way they used him his second year. He still made some impact specifically in the return game and just in cameo appearances. But Hardman is getting more looks and more opportunities as a rookie, which makes me think that next year, the year after the year after that, he's going to potentially explode to the point where they may have to decide at some point we move on from Tyreek Hill and we make Nicole Hardman the centerpiece of the receiving core. Yeah, and you know, there was one other aspect of that long touchdown that I loved, and that was the Lambo leap he did into a group of Chiefs fans in the front row in Tennessee, and he just effortlessly leaped over that wall in the Tennessee end zone, which looked like it was about eight, nine feet high, and he just leaped over it like it was nothing. So I thought that was a great illustration of what kind of athlete Nicole Hardman is that he it was just nothing to him to jump up into the crowd like that uh and uh yeah it it was it was fun to see what he can do with the ball in his hands and and we should be seeing more of that from the Chiefs as you mentioned and as Chris Sims has mentioned the Chiefs aren't really hitting on all cylinders right now they're they're leaving some plays out there I think if they they are a dangerous team if they get everything going the way they should. But but right now, we I don't know if Mahomes isn't 100% or what, but we're not seeing the Chiefs offense play quite the way we should. But certainly, you see with Miko Hardman how the promise is there. Yeah, and there was a point earlier in the year where it just felt like these Kansas City Chiefs were going to set themselves up for not just a first-round bye, but the number one seed in the AFC. They were 4-0, and and that's when the Colts came in week five, Sunday night, surprised them the following week. The Texans came to Arrowhead Stadium, surprised them. They got that win when they lost Patrick Mahomes for a couple of weeks, beat the Packers by a touchdown, beat the Vikings barely, and then had that three-point loss yesterday. So they're at a crossroads right now. They still have the Chargers twice. The Chargers will not back down from them. They have the Raiders again, and as of right now, the Raiders have played one fewer game, but the Raiders have four losses. The Chiefs have four losses. The Raiders have two winnable games coming up against the Jets and the Bengals. Raiders may be 7-4 and four when they go to Arrowhead Stadium in a few weeks, and all of a sudden, that's a huge game that has major implications because if the Chiefs don't figure this out quickly, it's not just a matter of missing out on the first-round bye. 
it's a matter of not even getting a home game in the playoffs and maybe being the five seed or the six seed if they can even hold their spot in the postseason, which would be a major disappointment for a team that we thought had Super Bowl potential. All right, coach of the year, uh, coach of the year, not not quite that, coach of the week time for week 10 of the 2019 season. MDS, who do you have? Well, you know, I was very tempted to select former Bears and Buccaneers head coach, now Illinois Fighting Illini head coach, Lovey Smith, who is now on a four-game winning streak in the Big Ten. I, I thought maybe picking a college coach wouldn't be fair, but I do have to give Lovey Smith a shout-out. But I'm going to pick Ravens offensive coordinator Greg Roman because I, I really feel like when you watch what they're doing on offense, it's easy to say, well, of course, Lamar Jackson is so talented, obviously – that offense is going to be great. But I don't think it would be great under every offensive coordinator. I think there are some coaches in the NFL who are too stubborn, stuck in their ways, would try to squeeze a a square peg into a round hole and wouldn't get the most out of Lamar Jackson's talents. I think it's really to Greg Roman's credit that they are getting the most out of Lamar Jackson's talents. I think Greg Roman is doing a lot of the same things for Lamar Jackson that he did for Colin Kaepernick when he was the offensive coordinator under the other Harbaugh brother in San Francisco. Uh, I I think Greg Roman is really proving himself. I think he ought to be a head coaching candidate after this season because he is really showing that he can take in a talented quarterback and build an offense around him. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. And look, it's taking a talent quarterback, building an offense that is premised on the things that that quarterback does. And also the creativity that we saw, the Heisman package with three Heisman Trophy winners on the field at the same time in the form of quarterback Lamar Jackson, running back Mark Ingram, and then the cameo appearance from RG3. They did the the triple option type play. They can do all sorts of things. When you have a guy like Lamar Jackson and you can sprinkle in a little RG3, you can do some fun, interesting things. And that's what you do when you have what feels like a special season. It's almost like you're a little cocky and you can do some creative things and you start showing different wrinkles and you start giving people things to think about as the season progresses and really planting the seeds for what you may try out or maybe not try out in the postseason. It almost kind of reminds me of the 85 Bears when they started running the ball and putting William Perry in the backfield like you start doing that a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more and that kind of takes on a character and personality of its own it would be interesting to see if they keep using RG3 and in what ways they use him I mean you could always flip the ball to him he could throw a pass there's all sorts of crazy things they can do with that Heisman package and I have a feeling we're going to see it more and more and you know right now hey I got my Ravens gear on they're the number one team with the 49ers losing with the Saints losing, Ravens at number three, and I give them a ton of credit for holding it together and keeping focused at a time when they could have had a letdown. Bengals are 0-8, the Ravens coming off of big wins over the Seahawks, and also the Patriots. They've got big games coming up, With starting with the Texans this weekend. would have been very easy to overlook the, the Bengals and maybe step into a trap, and they blew the doors off of the Bengals, and that's a testament to the entire coaching staff to keeping this guy, uh, these guys focused and also players like Lamar Jackson, who don't care what the game individually means. He shows up and he plays hard each and every week, no matter who the opponent, no matter whether it's day or night, no matter whether it's a game that clinches a playoff berth or whether it's a preseason game. And again, Roman is part of that. 
this focus, this effort to take care of business convincingly against a team they should have blown off the field. They did it, and uh, you know it's it fun to see. And I think they're going to keep rolling. And and right now, it will not surprise me if they end up the number one seed in the AFC. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, th- that win over the Patriots was an eye opener. But as you said, it also really matters that they didn't have a letdown the next week. And, and one of the things people like to say, oh, you know, the Bengals stink. You can't learn a thing from that. That really isn't true because, yes, the Bengals stink, but not everyone is blowing the doors off the Bengals the way the Ravens did. I mean, the Ravens dominated that game like really no other team has dominated even the Bengals. The Ravens also handed the Dolphins their worst loss of the year. And again, you can say, well, everybody is beating the Dolphins. Actually, the last couple of weeks, that hasn't been the case. But the Ravens blew out the Dolphins to a far greater extent than any other team did. When you're seeing... Baltimore win games by 49-10 and 59-10. You're seeing that this is a team that really means business. And I think that is an important measure of a good team's quality because it's not just about beating a bad team, but if you're a good team, you ought to blow out a bad team. And that's what the Ravens are doing. Yeah, and look, that's what you have to do if you're going to be a team that's going to have that truly magical season. You cannot have a letdown. You can't lose to the Falcons when you have two weeks to get ready like the New Orleans Saints did, which leads into my coach of the week. To the extent that it was a disappointment that the Saints failed to beat the Falcons when having two weeks to prepare, the Falcons under Dan Quinn finally got a signature victory. It's too little too late for this team. But at the same time, it's got to feel good for the Falcons to rally after having a chance to go back to square one, made some adjustments to the coaching staff, move Raheem Morris from offense back to defense, Dan Quinn giving up some of the play-calling obligations, and the Falcons just thumping the Saints, proving yet again that any given Sunday vibe that we talk about from time to time in the NFL. But it also proves to me that the Saints lack that focus that means special season coming, and it makes me wonder what kind of obstacles they're going to face with some of these games down the stretch. How do they respond to this? This was their first really bad game of the year. Look, they lost to the Rams on the day that Drew Brees got injured. Okay, that was going to be a tough win for them anyway. The Rams were much better back in Week 2 than they are now. But to step into that buzzsaw against the Falcons, that was stunning. And I don't want to make this about knocking the Saints as much as it is about praising Dan Quinn. This is a guy who everybody thinks he's getting fired. This is a team that no one is paying attention to. And I I talked to somebody about the Falcons last week. The only thing they have going for them is they're not so overtly dysfunctional that we even bother to notice them. And and that's the best thing that a bad team can do. Just stay off the radar screen. Because when you're a bad team, you're only getting on the radar screen when you're doing something dysfunctional. So the Falcons, we were ignoring them. And that was the best case scenario for them. Well, they come in and they thump the Saints in their own building. Dan Quinn, getting those guys ready, getting those guys to play hard, getting those guys focused, and getting the most out of them in the midst of a lost season, that was an impressive outcome. And it makes me a lot more anxious, MDS, to see what happens in two weeks when the tryptophan bowl Thursday night of Thanksgiving, that all of a sudden is something you need a B12 shot for. A little mango before you watch that game. You need to stay awake because that could be an interesting game that throws a wrench into the Saints' postseason aspirations. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think most people uh, before Sunday's game 
would have said, okay, that Thanksgiving night game is one that uh, we can go to sleep as soon as we've had our, our turkey sandwich and not, not even stay up for the second half. But that's not going to be the case. The Falcons are playing like they have something to prove. And none of us thinks the Falcons are going to run the table and make the playoffs. But the Falcons are probably a better team than their record indicates. And I think you're right. Dan Quinn wants to prove that. And he's done a good job. For all the talk of tanking, that just isn't the way that football coaches operate. They just don't have the mindset of, yeah, sure, I'll I'll tank. I'll give up on the season and, and start thinking about getting a better draft pick next year. It just doesn't really work that way. Brian Flores still wants the Dolphins to win. Adam Gase still wants the Jets to win. Dan Quinn still wants the Falcons to win. I, I still disagree with you on that. And you mentioned Lovey Smith earlier. It was week 17 of 2014 when the Buccaneers wanted to nail down the number one overall pick. They were leading the Saints by double digits in the second half. And half of the starters for the Buccaneers inexplicably yanked from the game. I remember the quotes from guys like Levante David. I don't know why they took me out of the game. I know why they took you out of the game. They took you out of the game because they wanted the number one overall pick in the draft. And when you know you're going to be there next year, then it's easier to sign on to the idea that, okay, we're doing a little extra. We're evaluating our younger players. And that's really what tanking gets sold as. We're evaluating our younger players. And I think the team that's in tank mode right now is the Cincinnati Bengals. They see the opportunity right there to grab the first overall pick. But as it relates to Dan Quinn, he's probably not going to be there next year, so it doesn't matter. He's just getting his guys to play hard, and he picked up a victory that at least, you know, if if you, I I think what it does, it, it helps rebuild your reputation a little bit and maybe makes it easier to land somewhere quickly as a defensive coordinator again if you go out with a bang, if you go out with a flourish. If I'm a head coach looking for a defensive coordinator, I'm thinking this is a guy who doesn't quit even when it's over. He didn't coast. He didn't mail it in. He busted his ass all the way to the finish, and I think that will be something that impresses people who may evaluate Dan Quinn after the season ends, MDS. Yeah, well, Lovey Smith is the one coach who has tanked He did it for Jameis Winston. He was not expecting that five years later he would be coaching the University of Illinois and Bruce Arians would be coaching Jameis Winston. He's the one guy who has done it. But I I think overwhelmingly football coaches don't really buy into the whole tanking thing. Well, I... I still disagree. I just think they're very artful about it. And also, if they again, if they know they're going to be there the next year. And, and I, I look, I know you and I have a philosophical disagreement on this. Once you know you're not making it to the playoffs, I say, what the hell? Empty the bench. Put all the scrubs out there and let nature take its course. And if you lose, if you lose, if you lose, if you, lose you win. What if, what if you're up 21 to 20 with a minute left and you take an intentional safety to lose 22-21? Is that okay? Well, but that would never happen. I I don't think we're ever going to see tanking happen within the context of deliberate lose. I think it comes in the form of deliberately going with lesser talent under the guise of evaluating talent. And then, and you try to win with the lesser talent, but you're not upset if you lose because you know that come April, that helps you win. And when you think about what the Jets gave up to move from number six to number three to get Sam Darnold, there's definitely a benefit there. And it's the one thing the NFL doesn't want to talk about. MDS, it's, it's why they won't do a draft lottery. They don't want to legitimize the idea that there is a reason 
to do something other than put your best players on the field to try to win every possible game, no matter what your record is, because that they're just between three and thirteen and two and fourteen, not much. When you flip it around to the draft hierarchy, it's there's a big difference. I would love not only a draft lottery, but a draft lottery that incentivizes not tanking. Have a draft lottery and have every team that wins in week 17 gets an extra ping pong ball in the lottery. Make it make it an incentive not to tank, to keep playing hard all season long. That would make it more fun. You're watching a game between two teams that aren't in contention at the end of the season, and they, they have a reason. They'll do better in the draft lottery if they win. That gives the fans something to cheer for. That would be a heck of a move if the NFL would do it. But Roger Goodell continues to resist it primarily because I think they don't want anyone to notice the obvious disconnect between how great it is to have those high draft picks and how tempting it is to not put your best players on the field and lose those games in December so you can get the highest possible draft pick when April rolls around. All right, call of the week time, MDS. What do you have? Okay, so the the coach who now coaches Jameis Winston, the quarterback who Lovey Smith tanked for, that tank job set into motion a whole rebuilding effort in Tampa Bay that now here we are on Jameis Winston's last year of that rookie contract. They're still rebuilding, so clearly that tanking didn't really achieve the desired results. But I liked one thing Bruce Arians did as part of his rebuilding effort is on Sunday he benched a former first-round pick, cornerback Vernon Hargraves, and then this morning he cut him. And Vernon Hargraves was released this morning, benched on Sunday because he wasn't hustling. And I think that's the type of thing Bruce Arians needs to do if he's going to get this team turned around. I think they need a culture change. I think they need a coach who's going to stand up and say, I'm not going to tolerate anything less than the best out of my players. And if you're not working hard every single snap, you're not going to be on this football team anymore. I think that's the kind of thing that Bruce Arians needs to do in Tampa. So I salute him for doing it. I think that was a great call. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And it remains to be seen how long he even stays in Tampa. Does Jameis Winston come back? He made some comments to Peter King suggesting that if Winston keeps playing the way he has the past couple of weeks, he'll get another contract. It gets very intriguing, though. If Winston finishes really strong, maybe somebody else says, hey, we're interested in Jameis Winston. And then the Buccaneers have a decision to make to keep him off the market. And maybe Winston decides, hey, you didn't show me the love when you could have. I'm going to see what else is out there. But for now, Winston has played well. Relative to what we've seen in the past, he's still got the potential to have that that strange what the hell is he thinking moment every once in a while. But Arians crafting that team the way that it needs to perform, the way that it needs to be held accountable if they're ever going to be better than they are. And they could be better than they already are. Three and six, they lost some games they should have won, and we'll see how many they can win down the stretch. I'm going to go back to Monday night, and this is something that Peter King mentioned today during PFT Live, and it kind of blew my mind. And I think it's kind of one of those things that it needs to be discussed and debated through the media before a coach can ever warm up to the idea of even considering the possibility of doing it in the moment. Because in the moment, I think it defies everything that a coach would be trying to do. And that is this. Now, look, 
the number of times this is going to happen over the next 50 years to even have the planets line up this way, it's probably going to be infrequent. Unlike many of these other analytics-based, you know, down by 14 points in the fourth quarter, you score a touchdown, do you go for two? Yes, you go for two. This is Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers, 8-0. This is the Seattle Seahawks, 7-2. And And when you get the ball back with a minute and 50 to play, deep in your own end, on your own 20, and you're the San Francisco 49ers, and the Seahawks have no timeouts, three knees and the game is over. Three knees and you're 8-0-1, and they are 7-2-1, and you have a two-game lead in the loss column over the Seattle Seahawks, and you still have zero when it's time to compare to the Saints, who now have two losses, the Packers, who now have two losses, the teams you're primarily competing with for the number one seed in the NFC. And there's wisdom there to the consideration of just taking the tie and going home. And at a minimum, what they should have done is run the ball once to to at least, you know, yeah, you make it harder on yourself to get in field goal range, but at the same time, you make it a lot harder for the Seahawks to get the game-winning field goal if you give the ball back to them. And I'm not even going to take it to the point of, well, they should have tried half-heartedly. I'm looking at that this as the strategic move, given what the standings are, given what the schedule is, given that you only have that seven weeks left in the regular season, to be two games up in the loss column on the Seahawks and on everyone else you're competing with in the conference. There's wisdom to this idea of just taking the knees and going home. And look, Shanahan obviously didn't do it, and I'm not saying he did the wrong thing, but ultimately they lost, and now he's got one loss, and the Seahawks have two, and it could come down to Week 17 NFC West Championship game, maybe even in primetime on NBC. And that all could have been avoided, potentially, if you just take the tie. And it would have been hell to pay. It goes against the – it's like tanking, right? It's like taking the intentional safety. No, what are you doing? Wait, no, you can't. You have to go for the win. Nobody wants the tie. Nobody wants to have watched this game for 70 minutes and have the end result be a tie. I would have been pissed off if he would have done it. The fans would have been pissed off. They would have been booed off the field. But then when Kyle Shanahan goes to the podium and explains, well, look, hey, folks, we talk about analytics all the time. It's not just analytics within the confines of a game. It's analytics within the confines of the schedule of the season. And look at where we are. We're 8-0-1, Right. Yeah, that means we can't be 16-0, and but who cares? We're two games up in the loss column on everyone, and we're far more likely to be the number one seed than if we had punted the ball, the Seahawks had driven down, Russell Wilson pulls a rabbit out of his hat or his ass or somewhere else, and the Seahawks win like they did. Now, that's tougher to sell when we don't know that that's what was going to happen, but I think it's just worth having the discussion because having the discussion means maybe the next time around there's conscious thought given to it. And there's a conversation among coaches about circumstances where you would deliberately take a knee at the end of, of overtime. And with only a 10-minute overtime, it is something that potentially could come up again. Remember that year a couple of seasons ago? There were a lot of games that went deep into overtime. And, and I think it's just something to be aware of. It's something like this is the kind of thing that Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick would have done it. If, if, if he would have had the exact same circumstance last night, I think he takes the knees and he gets the hell out. If he's got Russell Wilson on the other side, one minute and 50 seconds left and no timeouts, at a minimum he runs it once or twice and just says, oh, well, if the clock runs out. But maybe he goes the rest of the way and takes three knees and takes the tie and explains to everyone afterward why he took the tie. Yeah, and, you know, this came up last year, too, when uh, Frank Reich 
decided to go for it on a fourth down in his own territory with about 20 seconds left in overtime against the Texans. Colts got stopped. Texans ended up winning the game. The Colts were in uh, the same situation. If they had punted from there with like 20 seconds left, it almost certainly would have been a tie. But because they went for it on fourth down, didn't get it. They set up the Texans to win the game, which they did. Um, And that was also the top two teams in their division. And it was another situation where the Colts would have been better off tying. And Frank Reich stood by it. And people asked him, why not play for the tie? And he said, my team wants to play to win. But it is something that I think has to be in coaches' minds is what will be the outcome of a tie in our division? And at the end of the season, we start seeing these playoff scenarios that say, well, this team needs to win. This team needs to win or tie. And I think if you're not a coach, if you're a coach and you're not aware of whether your team needs a win or just a win or tie, you're not doing your job correctly. I think there was a year when Jim Mora was head coach of the Falcons, Jim Mora Jr., and he ended up actually getting on the phone and asking, hey, if we tie here, is that as good as a win or would it be more like a loss in the playoff race? Uh, And I think he got in trouble for using a phone on the sideline. Uh, but it, but it's something coaches really ought to know because it does make a difference. There are years that a playoff race comes down to one team is 12 and four, but the other team is 12, three and one. And that's the team that wins the division. So uh, it, it does matter. It is important. And yeah, I think that uh, every coach needs to know, will it be better for my team to tie? And if so, play for the tie. Jim Mora was fined $25,000 for making that phone call late in the 2005 season. He said, expensive phone call, consider that a lesson learned. But he was trying to find out what it meant to the playoff race, given that there were victories by Dallas and Washington earlier in the day. It meant an Atlanta loss would eliminate the Falcons from the NFC playoff race. He was unsure if they would remain in contention by tying Tampa Bay. So there it is. And you're right. Hey, look. If we're going to focus on analytics and math and this very dispassionate analysis of what decisions need to be made under what circumstances, then I think it is something that doesn't just apply to a given game because the purpose of the game is to win as many games as possible to get to the playoffs, to get the best possible playoff seating, to win games there. And I think it's just part of it. And the thing about a tie, a tie is very useful when it comes to figuring out those damn tiebreakers. Because if one team has a tie, you don't have to worry about those damn tiebreakers. It's a much easier analysis if you have a team that is 10-5-1 versus 11-5 or 10 and 6. All right, here's what we're going to do. Those are the awards for week 10. We are going to let you hear what Le'Veon Bell had to say earlier today. Before we do that, though, I do have to mention that the Sims What the Bleep Happened podcast is available as of tomorrow, I believe, regarding what Sean McVay needs to do to reinvent himself, a breakdown of Jimmy G, what the Cowboys were thinking during that four-play sequence at the end of the game against the Vikings. That's the Chris Sims Unbuttoned podcast that is coming on Wednesday. Coming now, conversation I had earlier today with Jets running back Le'Veon Bell. Joining us now, one of the best running backs in the National Football League. First season with the New York Jets, he's Le'Veon Bell. He's appearing on behalf of PepCoin by PepsiCo. Everybody loves a payday, including Le'Veon, and now everyone in the country can get their payday with PepsiCo's first-ever loyalty program, PepCoin. When you buy PepsiCo beverages and Frito-Lay snacks together, PepsiCo pays you back. Today, Le'Veon will be driving a PepCoin armored truck around New York City 
surprising fans with coin in celebration of his payday. Visit pepcoin.com for more info. Had you ever driven and have you ever driven an armored truck before today? Honestly, no. So this would be a fun experience for me, too. (laughs) Is there any special training for driving an armored truck? Special training? I mean, I hope not, because if if, if there is, I missed it. (laughs) Is it it a stick shift? Can you pop a clutch? Do you know how to do all of that? (laughs) I don't know. We got to learn everything today. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, well, it's good to have you for a few minutes. I know you're doing a bunch of these. Uh, Monday Night Football, that's the buzz right now in the NFL. Everybody's talking about last night's game. I'm always curious, as a football player, how much of a football fan are you? Do you watch a game like last night as a fan, or is it hard for you to enjoy it as a fan because you play the game? Um, Yeah, I I watch it as a fan. You know what I mean? I still have, like, favorite players that I watch um, around the NFL, and uh, Russell Wilson is definitely one of them, so – um, it was fun watching him um, do, what he, do what he did last night. Um, it was such a fun game, an entertaining game on both sides of the ball, though. Who are your other favorite players? Um, I like Saquon. Um, I like uh, Tyreek Hill. Um, I like Zeke Elliott. I mean, there's a lot of exciting players, you know what I mean? I can go for days, but I don't want to you know, continue to leave people out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned Saquon. He had a rough day on Sunday. I, and I, I look at the stat line, and I, I like my eyes have to refocus. Surely it's not 13 carries for one yard. Did you say anything to him after the game to kind of, you know, boost him up a little bit moving forward? Um, yeah, I mean, we talked after the game, and um, I basically told him, you know, just keep his head down, keep moving forward, you know. Um, you know, it, it, football is a tough game, you know, so um, he's coming back off an of injury and things like that. So I'm sure he's probably still fighting that a little bit. And plus, you know, his team having a little bit of struggles, kind of like um, we we were a little earlier. Um, you know, we just got, was able to overcome that game, but uh, I'm sure you know they'll get back in the in the uh, you know right situation, get the ship sailing the right way. You say uh, football is a tough game. It's also a tough business. That's something that you learned a couple of years ago. What's the biggest business lesson you've learned during your time in the NFL? Um, the biggest. Um, I mean, really just to stay patient, you know, to stay the course. Um, you know, I, I've been playing football such a long time, so um, nothing really came, you know, overnight. So um, I kind of had that mindset the whole time where uh, when I was sitting out the whole whole season and um, I understood what I was trying to do and um, and what I felt like I was worth at the time. So um, that's really, like, I guess the, my biggest, you know, my biggest one, I would say. One of the things that drives me crazy, Le'Veon, about the NFL game is everybody's allowed to make business decisions except the players. And when the players make business decisions, they're being selfish, they're being greedy, they're being this, they're being that. How hard is that to take a stand when it feels like the whole system is rigged against players making business decisions? Um, Yeah, it's tough, you know, but um, obviously as a player, you just kind of got to understand where where everything's coming from. You know, um, fans kind of you know, like that certain team or that city where they're from or whatever it is, you know, um, they're always going to kind of, well, not always, but majority is going to side with, you know, that team um, just strictly because they like that team. You know, they want that team to be the best that they can be. So um, sometimes if a player, you know, wants more, you know, money or a better situation, you know, it kind of looks bad on the player. But um, a lot of times they don't really understand, you know, where the player is coming from. Um, so it, it gets a little tough sometimes, but um, I just like, you know, 
understanding where I'm coming from, and that's how I do it best for, you know, my family or, or myself. Um, and I encourage all the other players to do the same thing. You know, it's amazing. Just hearing you explain that, Le'Veon, it impresses me that you have a very pragmatic, very even-keeled view of what can be a very tough game, a very tough business. Is that just the way you've always been, or have you had to kind of get yourself to understand you separate the emotion from that calculated business angle that you have to take if you're going to be successful in this league? Um, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. You know I mean? I think naturally my personality is like, I've always kind of been like a stubborn kid, you know? So I think just over the time, over the course of time, obviously I've learned a lot as I've been in the NFL, but I think they both kind of played into it because it's like, um, you know, my understanding has grown um, as I got older, you know, in the league and I've been around. And obviously, like, just my natural, like, personality a little bit, you know. So um, I think they both kind of played a factor into it and kind of made me who I am today. You had a great video a couple of weeks ago preaching patience for this New York Jets team you're now a part of, that things are moving in the right direction. Give me the main reason, the main thing that you've learned during your time with the team that causes you to believe that this is an organization with the arrow pointing up. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've really made that video just, you know, because everything was kind of in the whirlwind, you know. It's a lot of people on social media talking about, you know, all types of, you know, trades and, and you know, people – one get the coaches and GM and stuff fired and things like that. And um, I just want everybody to really understand that, you know, it, it really takes time to kind of build the program that you're looking for. You know, um, all the great programs, you think about it, you know, it, it took them time to get to where they're at, you know, um, and that's the direction we want to go, obviously. So um, we got a lot of good, you know, free agents over the um, – off season, and you know we had a new new coach, and you know new basically a whole new line and new general manager. So um, everything's not going to just happen, you know, in, in the blink of an eye. You know, and I just wanted people to kind of understand that. And you still had that very calm, dispassionate, patient approach, even though you had just been the subject of trade talks. You mentioned on the seventeen weeks podcast from Uninterrupted that the Packers, the Chiefs, the Texans, the Steelers had all expressed interest in trading for you at the deadline. How close did it come to actually happening with one of those four teams? Um, I, I, Honestly, it was close. You know, I mean, um, I, I, I obviously was, a, you know, at the time just like hearing everything out and seeing how everything plays out, you know. Um, obviously, I didn't want to get traded, but um, if it did happen, you know, I was ready and I was, you know, obviously going to have to do what I had to do, but um, – yeah, I just kind of understand, you know, um, you know, from the Jets' perspective, or if you know if they were trading me and they got some value out of it, you know, I understand where they're coming from, and you know, like I, like, like you said earlier, it's like it's a business, you know, it's strictly business, and um, I understand that whole business decision thing, so um, I didn't take too much offense to it, you know, I just kind of kept my head down, and uh, once the trade trade deadline actually went by, I was just ready to um, put my head down and get back to work. And Le'Veon, I got the impression from your comments on the 17 Weeks podcast that one of the business aspects was a new team maybe wanted you to redo your deal. And you said, hey, wait, I I fought for this thing. I'm not redoing anything. If you want to trade for me, you're taking my contract. Was that a big part of those talks? Yeah, that was definitely a a huge part, you know, um, you know, because. And, you know, I understand how, you know, things work and everything. But the fact that I had to, you know, 
actually sat out a whole year to kind of get to where I wanted to get today, you know, I, I definitely couldn't, like, you know, retract on it, you know. Um, I'm still trying to set myself up and my family up down the line. So um, I, I made sure that, you know, everything tried to stay intact. And um, we both would have, you know, myself and whoever team would have got me would have both became winners out of it, not just them. All right, I'm not going to ask you which team it came the closest with, but what color helmet would you be wearing right now if it had happened? Uh, I don't know. I I can't even say that. I can't even tell you. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, what's the biggest difference between Mike Tomlin, the guy who was your only NFL coach before this year, and Adam Gase, the guy who's your coach now? Um, The biggest difference is uh, I think uh, it's because Coach Tomlin is more of like – he's more defensive-minded, you know – it was rare when I had, like, you know, meetings and things like that where Coach Tomlin was sitting there with us because uh, he's always with the defense. You know, he's more of a defensive-minded head coach. And, you know, Adam Gage is really the total opposite. He's an offensive-minded coach. Um, I spend a lot of time with him because he's in all of our meetings, going all, going over all the plays and installs, you know. So um, that's really the huge, you know, the biggest difference for real because uh, being offensive and defensive-minded. Last question for you. Give me one thing you miss about Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I just miss the, I miss the, I miss the fans, you know, the fans are, you know, they were great. Um, they always came out and supported. It was always kind of, you know, behind me. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I miss a lot of my teammates too. You know, I had great friends over there. Um, so it it was fun over there, you know? Um, so there was a lot of things I miss about it, you know, but I'm obviously being in New York now, you know, I'm happy where I am. Hey, let me ask you one more real quick one. Have you kept in touch with Antonio Brown at all? He's going through a rough time. He wants to get back in the league. What advice would you have for him? Um, I actually haven't kept in touch with him, you know, but, um, you know, I I think, you know, my biggest advice would probably be like, uh, maybe like um, not try to to do too much over social media. You know what I mean? Um, Everybody kind of watches him and follows him and wants to hear what he has to say. So uh, try to keep on the positive energy. You know, if you are on social media and, and try not to post, you know, negative things. All right, man. Great advice and good luck today driving the armored truck. I'd give you some advice if I could. I've never gotten within 10 feet of one. So uh, pop the clutch and hope for the best. And at le- Hey, at least it's big, right? What can happen? It's big. Rock, scissors, paper. The armored truck's going to win if it goes haywire. So good luck driving around in that thing today, Le'Veon. We hope to talk to you again down the road. Most definitely. I appreciate it. Make sure everybody follows me on social media today. I'm giving out cash with Pepcoin. Payday. Pepcoin.com. We'll check it out and we'll check out your social media pages and uh, good luck with it. Most definitely. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Jets running back Le'Veon Bell for some of his time. Thanks to the folks at PepsiCo for making him available. Before we scram for this edition of the PFTPM podcast, MDS, some of the questions, some of the best questions that were posed via Twitter by the PFTPM Posse. Let's begin with Josh Ramos, a.k.a. at Vamos for Ramos. Ramos, Ramos, hey, you know who we mean. After losing to the Jets, is Pat Shermer's seat the hottest of any NFL coach? Do you think he's the Giants' head coach next season? MDS, what do you think? I still think he is going to be back next season just because I think that John Mara doesn't like the idea of his team being one of these teams that is constantly cycling through coaches. I think John Mara really felt like with Ben McAdoo, it had reached a point where it was just not going to get any better and he had to make the call when he did. But I think he would much prefer not to be an owner 
who keeps firing coaches after two years. So I think Pat Shermer gets a third year, but I think there are a lot of owners who wouldn't be that patient. I don't see a lot of progress when I look at the Giants and where they are now compared to where they were when Pat Shermer got the job. So I don't think it would be the least bit unfair to fire him based on two years. I think there have been coaches who have done a better job in their first two years and didn't get a third year, but I I still expect Pat Shermer to be back. You know who did better in his first two years and didn't even get to finish the second year? You know who did better (laughs) than Pat Shermer? Ben McAdoo. Ben McAdoo did better. Ben McAdoo's record when he got fired in the regular season was 13 and 15. Pat Shermer is 7 and 19 through 26 games of his career. And it was a 2 and 10 record in 2017 that got Ben McAdoo fired. The Giants in 2019 are 2 and 8. And John Mara, the co owner of the team, had steam coming out of his ears on Sunday after that loss to the Jets. And, and here's the thing. It's the Jets. The Giants look down their noses at the Jets. The Jets are that crass, vulgar, working-class New York team. We're the upper-crust elite franchise. We are the Giants. We're better than the Jets. To lose to the Jets, that becomes a wild-card factor in all of this. And I don't think Shermer's going to get fired during the season, but I think he's in trouble after the season. And I think Dave Gettleman, even though Dave Gettleman found their guy in Daniel Jones, Gettleman could be in trouble as well. And then you get this weird scenario where you have a new GM, you have a new coach. If this happens, you got Daniel Jones, and it could be that you end up with a GM and or a coach that doesn't believe in Daniel Jones, and you're starting all over again trying to find your Eli Manning replacement. And it could get very awkward, and it could be that desire to get the most out of Daniel Jones becomes the thing that would save Gettleman and Shermer. But I think that Gettleman and Shermer are in trouble, and I think Shermer more so than Gettleman. So, yeah, now, I don't think that that means Gettleman has the hottest seat. I think the hottest seat, quite frankly, belongs right now to Jason Garrett, the Cowboys head coach, because if they don't make the playoffs, he's done. And after losing to the Vikings, falling into a tie with the Eagles at 5-4, and four, and when you look at the upcoming schedule for both teams, I think the Eagles win the division. And I don't think the Cowboys get into the playoffs without winning the division. They're going to have to run the table or something damn close to it, and at a minimum, they got to win in Philadelphia to have that head-to-head tiebreaker if they have the same record as the Eagles. But I think Jason Garrett's on the hottest seat, and I think after that that vibe that emerged when they thrashed the Eagles, I, I, I'm skeptical now, and it could be that there's a new head coach in Dallas when 2020 rolls around, MDS. And so we already have an interim head coach in Washington, may very well have a new, co- new head coach in Dallas. The NFC East maybe has three new head coaches. And, and you know, you said that the Giants looked down their noses at the Jets. I think there's a little bit of John Mara that looks down his nose at Dan Snyder and Jerry Jones and thinks those two guys are the type of guys who have too quick a hook with their head coach. And I'm the type of guy who's more understanding about how to build a franchise. This franchise has been in my family for most of the NFL's 100 seasons. We're not the type to just throw a coach overboard. So I think that may actually be to Pat Shermer's favor that John Mara may think to himself, I don't want to throw my coach overboard the same year that Dan Snyder and Jerry Jones did. I want to show more patience with my coach than that. But no question about it. There's only one safe coach in the NFC East. That's in Philadelphia. The other three teams, I think there are serious questions 
in those three coaching situations. We already have one interim head coach. Cowboys and Giants may be joining them soon. Our friend Dean Osborne, 42, asks, is the MVP race now between Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson? I don't think it's just between them because I think it's still a long season left. I really like Deshaun Watson, and I think if the Texans can go on a run and not just win the AFC South, but win a bye week in the AFC, I really think you would have to consider Deshaun Watson and you look at how much he does for their offense, where they would be without him, where they were without him when he got hurt. I really think Deshaun Watson has shown he's a unique player in the NFL. And I think he deserves to be an MVP candidate. I think right now it is Wilson and Jackson one and two, but it's still a long season left. I don't think it's just those two. And I certainly think Deshaun Watson is in that mix as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Deshaun Watson is in the mix. I think Aaron Rodgers could pull himself back into it, although statistically the past couple of games haven't matched those two great games that he had, starting with his first career perfect passer rating against the Oakland Raiders a few weeks back. But I think Watson is still hanging around. I think that Christian McCaffrey still has the potential, but he's going to have to have a historic or close to it performance when it comes to yards from scrimmage. You know, you've got this nagging sense that Michael Thomas could maybe get into the mix, but with the Saints losing on Sunday, that kind of knocks him out, at least for now. Tom Brady, if the Patriots would run the table and be the number one seed, Tom Brady was second in passing yardage going into week 10. But I think for now, the front runners are Jackson and Wilson, but all it takes is an injury to change that and eliminate a guy or make it very hard for him to pull back into it if he does miss any time. And that leads to the next question from Terry Gensler. Do you think Patrick Mahomes could still make a run to win MVP? Would voters skip over him for missing games, even if he put up numbers deserving of the MVP award? MDS, what do you think? I think he could, but I think it's a pretty long, long shot. And uh, I, I think the fact that they were still competitive with Matt Moore might actually hurt Patrick Mahomes' candidacy because I think people are going to look and say, hey, they, they still beat the Broncos after Patrick Mahomes went down, played very competitively against the Packers, and then beat the Vikings. Uh, that, to me, raises that question of, well, is it really just the Patrick Mahomes show? So I think if he were to just put up insane numbers the rest of the way, which he is capable of doing, you know, if he were to average 400 yards and four touchdowns a game the rest of the way, he could put himself back into the mix. But right now, I'd say he's a pretty big long shot. Yeah, I agree with that. And I looked this up recently. There hasn't been an MVP that missed time due to injury since Steve McNair played 14 games in 2003 and shared the MVP award with Peyton Manning. And the only guy since then to miss a game was Aaron Rodgers in 2011 when he was rested because they had the number one seed tied up. Every other MVP since 2003, including Peyton Manning with his half of it in 2003, played and started all 16 games the year they won it. Because the reality is it's so easy to fall off of that 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 bandwagon for MVP because there's going to be somebody else who does play 16 games, who does rack up the statistics that go along with playing and starting 16 games. It's very difficult to make up that gap once you have missed out on a game. Here's another one, Theo Riley 7. Can you see the 49ers parting ways with Jimmy G if they don't win the NFC West? 
Yes, I can. If they don't win the NFC West, then yes, I could. Um, it, it was an interesting contract that they gave Jimmy G because people were all over the map about what does Jimmy G do. Some people were saying, oh, he ought to just sign to be a backup to Tom Brady, stay in New England. I mean, that that was one thing a lot of people were arguing. Other people were arguing he hits free agency. He's going to be the highest paid player in the league because he played so well at the end of that season with the 49ers, he, he took over a 49ers team that was terrible when they traded for him, led him on a five-game winning streak. So people were all over the map with that contract at the time. But if you remember that contract, this offseason is the year when it isn't too painful for the 49ers to move on if they so choose. So I could see it happening. I don't think it will happen. I do think he will be the quarterback of the 49ers next year. But it's certainly possible that he won't. And especially, that's a big if that you said, if they do not win the NFC West, because obviously that means they lose at least one more game, maybe to the Seahawks. The If the Seahawks catch them, and then the 49ers are a wild card, and then, you know, let's say they're at Philadelphia in the wild card game, and they lose that one, and Jimmy G doesn't play, and they exit the playoffs in the first round, that would be a pretty big disappointment for a team that started the season 8-0. And yeah, if that were to happen, I do think it's possible they could move on. And let me take it a slightly different path. They could still win the NFC West, but let's say that Jimmy Garoppolo just doesn't perform well in comparison to the starting quarterback of the team that they face in the divisional round. And let's say maybe they still win that game despite his performance, and then he doesn't perform well in comparison to the quarterback that they face in the NFC Championship, and they would lose that game and not get to the Super Bowl. I think Kyle Shanahan's the kind of guy that would engage in a very dispassionate assessment of, number one, the throws Garoppolo makes and doesn't make, the situations where he can be trusted and can't be trusted. And he made some bad throws last night, and he did have happy feet and jitters last night. And if you look at the full body of work, and it culminates in an exit from the playoffs where, you know, he just didn't have it, and you have an alternative that you feel good about, that could be something that makes the 49ers take full advantage of that contract. They And they didn't specifically construct it for Jimmy Garoppolo, but they do it with all their big money contracts where you don't have to make a decision until April 1. And that is an eternity when it comes to an NFL offseason because so much happens from the middle of March until April 1. Free agents are available. Trades can be done. You do a lot of work in advance of the draft. You can make a decision about Jimmy Garoppolo after looking at every other alternative available to you. And I think it would be foolish to not do it if they don't at least get to the Super Bowl this year, and if Garoppolo along the way has games like he had last night, where it's not the running game that's clicking, it's not the defense that's dominating, it's Jimmy Garoppolo being required to step up and make a play and not getting it done. It's a lot like Kirk Cousins. I mean, J Jimmy Garoppolo is Kirk Cousins on a better overall team, where when the focus does slide to him and it's okay, it's time for you to do something, he didn't get it done last night. And if that happens again in the postseason, I think he's vulnerable, MDS. And it'd be interesting to see what happens if he would get cut loose or if he'd get traded. Is this a situation where the Patriots welcome him home? And with the, the fact that he goes back to New England and ultimately plays even better, is that a factor in the decision the 49ers make to keep or get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo? But these are fascinating issues that I think really will come to the forefront if the 49ers have a disappointing exit to the postseason 
that exposes Jimmy G as a guy you can't rely on. Yeah, and you know, teams will move on from quarterbacks who take them to the playoffs. I mean, the Vikings went to the playoffs with Case Keenum. They moved on and got Kirk Cousins. Alex Smith, he was doing a great job getting the Chiefs to the playoffs every year, but they figured the playoffs are the ceiling and we want the Super Bowl. So they moved on from Alex Smith, traded up, drafted Patrick Mahomes, gave him a year behind Alex Smith and went to him. You know, Brock Osweiler went to the playoffs with the Texans in his one year there and they couldn't wait to dump him and they did the right thing by dumping him and trading up for Deshaun Watson. So you're right that just because Jimmy G takes the 49ers to the playoffs doesn't necessarily mean that his job is safe, especially when we acknowledge that we always say a quarterback took his team to the playoffs. Right now it's the 49ers defense that has taken them to first place much more than it's Jimmy Garoppolo. So no question about it. There is certainly a scenario when Jimmy G is elsewhere next year. There's also a scenario where he's Super Bowl MVP at the end of this year. I mean, I'm not writing him off by any stretch of the imagination, but but there is certainly a possibility that he's not there anymore. Well, I mean, as franchise quarterbacks go, he is in a far more vulnerable position than others would be. The idea that the jury is still out on him for 2020. You don't say that about Deshaun Watson. You don't say that about Patrick Mahomes. You don't say that about Russell Wilson. You don't say that about Lamar Jackson. But the jury is out on Jimmy G for 2020. The same way the jury's out on Kirk Cousins for 2020. The only difference is the Vikings are stuck. The 49ers aren't, and the 49ers can quickly escape all financial obligation to Jimmy Garoppolo for next year and only have a $4.2 million cap charge if they would move on. One last one, very, very briefly. This one fascinates me. Sims and I have been talking about it. Our good friend Tom Marshall from the UK at A Red Zone Alk always has great questions. Has the NFL caught up with Sean McVay? I think caught up might be a little bit too far, but there is no question that things aren't working this year the way they worked last year. And it will be now up to Sean McVay to adjust to the adjustments that other teams have made to his team. Because there's no question that taking it back, certainly the last year's Super Bowl and all through this season, it just isn't looking quite right. And people can say, well, you know, they've lost offensive linemen. Todd Gurley's not the same player. Jared Goff has taken a step back. Whatever reason you want to put on it, the bottom line is this Rams offense just looked like at its best it was unstoppable. Like opposing defensive coordinators simply could not figure it out. And that's not the case anymore. And if the NFL is caught up with Sean McVay, it's going to be real interesting to see what he does to adjust because with that contract, Jared Goff's not going anywhere. They're stuck with him. And if it turns out that actually people have figured out how to stop Jared Goff in Sean McVay's offense, that's a real problem. Also, of course, they traded away their next two first-round picks. So it's not like they can count on an infusion of young offensive talent. They chose to use their next two first-round picks on defensive talent, Jalen Ramsey. So they really are up against a wall. And, and and I thought last year, Sean McVay had a Rams team that could be contenders for several years. Maybe that wasn't the case. And maybe we're going to find that 
they they were peaking last year and now they're beginning a slide the other way. Here's my take on it as quickly and efficiently as I can summarize it. And I've hinted at this before. Sean McVay is a great coach when it comes to X's and O's. And look, coaches need to be loyal to their players. They need to be loyal at times to a fault to their players. But you can't go so far with it that it undermines the best interests of the team. And I can point to two players where Sean McVay has mishandled the situation. All due respect to Sean, he's young, he's still learning how to be the right kind of coach that balances loyalty with that ruthless, cold, rip the name off the back of the jersey and make tough decisions attitude that coaches need to have, like Bill Belichick all the time, makes the decision he has to make. That fear of being on the wrong end of a decision like that is one of the reasons why Tom Brady has been so motivated throughout his career to be the best player he can be. Todd Gurley, there's such a fear on the part, and I don't know that it's fear, I don't know what it is. There's an aversion, there's a reluctance, there's a refusal to acknowledge that Todd Gurley's knee is jacked up and that Gurley is never going to be a workhorse running back again. So every time that Gurley has a subpar performance, you see Sean McVay engaged in all sorts of verbal gymnastics trying to explain away why it was that Todd Gurley didn't get the ball 25 times, coming up with some excuse that doesn't make him look bad. Well, you know what? At some point, you just got to call it what it is. His knee's jacked up. He's no longer a workhorse running back, and that's just the way it is. And I don't know whether this is the only way you can play it with Todd Gurley, lest you piss him off and lose him and not get the best out of him and have a problem there. But I don't like the way that the Todd Gurley situation has been handled. Everyone is ignoring the elephant in the room. McVay is. Every time he has a press conference and it comes up, everybody tiptoes around the idea that Gurley's knee is jacked up and he's no longer a workhorse running back. And it's irritating to see it time and time again. The other side of it is all the criticism that was put on Jared Goff after Super Bowl 52, 53, when the guy's wide open, Brandon Cook's in the end zone, and Goff misses him, and that play was dialed up again with a specific plan of getting Brandon Cook's wide open, and Goff blew it. Championship moment, championship throw, Goff didn't make it. The criticism of Goff prompted McVay, in my opinion, to go so over the top with his defense of Goff. Over and over again, how great Goff is and how he's mastered the offense, he's owning the offense, he's the guy, he's the guy, he's the guy. At a certain point, you put yourself in a spot where Goff's agent calls you up and starts rattling off all the things you've said. When are you going to pay my guy? If you want my guy to believe he's the guy, there's one way to make him feel like he's the guy, and that's pay the guy. And that backed the Rams into a corner. They wanted, I think, to wait on Goff, and if they had waited on Goff, maybe they wouldn't have paid him. Aaron Rodgers money and so that's where the flaw is and you know we always wonder who's really running the show in LA I think it is more McVeigh than Les Snead I just think McVeigh's not wired to be the guy who is perceived to be the final say but McVeigh needs to be very careful and I think part of his evolution as a coach is to understand there needs to be some distance there needs to be some care in what you say about your players and how you say it because you're putting yourself in a spot where you're stuck with Jared Goff. And if, hey, look, all due respect to Jared Goff, he's one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL, but he's far from being one of the best. And I think you need to have one of the best if you want to be one of the best teams, MDS. Yeah, and uh, it, it is the thing that I think Bill Belichick has done the best in his long tenure with the Patriots is he hasn't gotten wrapped up in well, I just need this guy. This guy's been such a good player for me. I have to pay whatever he's asking for. Bill Belichick will trade away good players. Chandler Jones is a very good player, has been for, what is it, four years now with the Cardinals. But Bill Belichick traded him away, did not regret it, 
at all because Bill Belichick has plans for how to stay young, how to how to get rid of expensive older guys and replace them with less expensive younger guys so that you retain salary cap flexibility year in and year out. Bill Belichick really liked Richard Seymour. Richard Seymour was a very good player for Bill Belichick, but Belichick recognized the right time to move on and did it. And I think that if Bill Belichick were running the Rams, Todd Gurley probably would have already been gone because Bill Belichick, when he spots that a guy isn't the same as he used to be, he says, I'm going to trade him before the rest of the league realizes he isn't the same as he used to be. And I can't get anything good in return on a trade. And I think that that may be what has caught up to Sean McVay even more than X's and O's, even more than defensive coordinators studying the film, is it may just be that Sean McVay fell in love with a few key players who now aren't producing at the all-pro level that he thought they would. Yeah, I think that's a great point, MDS. And on that, we're going to wrap this Tuesday edition of PFTPM. We'll be back later in the week for the Mega Joint Picks podcast with Chris Sims unbuttoned. And boy, I'm looking forward to that one because I whipped his ass. I kicked your ass too, MDS. We disagreed on two games. How about the Steelers? How about the Seahawks? I got lucky on both of them. I'll take it because you're still beating me by eight games through 10 weeks. So I have a feeling I'm not going to catch you, but I'm taking it to Sims and I plan to take it to him on Thursday. Everybody check us out at profootballtalk.com. Have a great day. We'll see you later in the week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave.